You know, one of the characteristics of summertime that many of us enjoy is the access to a wider variety of fresh fruit. In fact, I think it'd be interesting just to go around the room this morning and, and ask, what's your favorite fruit? And maybe even more importantly, in what form do you like that fruit delivered? I'm sure many people would say watermelon. I know our family's already enjoying a couple great watermelons this summer. My dad even had a, a method of thumping them at the grocery store, and he told us kids that's the way you could tell whether one was ripe or not. The older I've gotten, I put the reliability of that one up there with um, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but that's what he claimed, and, and I have to admit, he is pretty good, pretty good at, at picking uh, ones that were ripe. As I've gotten older, I even enjoy cantaloupe. I'm not even exactly sure why, but it just it reminds me uh, of summertime. I, I'm sure a number of people here would say, well, it's strawberries. Strawberries, especially if the delivery system is a freshly made strawberry pie. Have you had one of those already this summer? I mean, fruit and whipped cream. That is a delightful combination for sure. Our longtime members will probably remember a gentleman named Marvin Davis. He was in our Caleb's Kin group for many, many years, and he used to make a, a seven-berry pie that was absolutely phenomenal. We would have um, uh, picnics for the Caleb's Kin group over at our house in the summertime. One of the questions you would ask is, is Marvin coming? And, um, along with, and is he bringing his pie? And even if Marvin can't come, could he drop one of those pies over? And what was interesting in part about Marvin was for, for decades, he worked at the produce section. He was the produce manager for one of our, our local stores, grocery stores. But he whispered to me once, he said, you know, on the day that I'm making my pie, if um, our store doesn't have the best produce, I'll clandestinely go over to one of our competitors and get their berries because I want what is absolutely best. And I wondered... Did he disguise himself? I mean, did he have dark glasses and a, a big nose or something like that? But there's a guy right there who, who appreciated fruit. I say, why, Pastor Barras, why are you getting that in our heads this morning? Well, interestingly, the Bible uses that very metaphor of fruitfulness. So think about all the deliciousness that goes along with that concept. That's one of the metaphors that's used to describe what can be true and what should be true of followers of Jesus Christ and that could be illustrated in all sorts of ways, including Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit, even to the legalistic Galatians when he said in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, that sounds like one of Marvin Davis's pies right there, except in a person's character in a person's lifestyle. After a person comes to Christ, think of it, the Holy Spirit, and that undergirds everything that we're going to be talking about this morning and throughout this summer, the, the Holy Spirit, it makes that kind of fruitfulness possible. Or when Jesus said this rather directly, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Why? I appointed you that you would go and, and what? And, and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. There's a promise that goes along with that. Your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, now here's why that matters this morning. Our, our church's theme this year is hope for everyday life. And so we've spent the bulk of our time this year working our way verse by verse through the book of First Peter. That was written about A.D. 65 to people who were scattered around the Roman Empire because of their faith as a result of the increasing persecution by the wicked emperor Nero. And part of what we have found both amazing and also encouraging is that Peter affirms that people like you and me, even in the midst of trials and hardships and difficulties, you got any of those going on? We can still be people of hope. In places even like 1 Peter 1.3, right at the beginning of a book written to people who are scattered because of their faith, living under wicked emperor Nero, Peter would still say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what kind of hope? To, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And notice that juxtaposition between um, the gospel and our hope. It's possible for you and me to be people of hope. Well, this summer, we're dipping our toes in the waters of Second Peter. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But, but this book now was written three years later. And Peter's especially concerned about false teaching that is infiltrating the church. There's a, there's a lack of fruit. There's a lack of fruit both doctrinally and also practically. And here's the logical connection. Genuine love always produces lasting fruit. And genuine hope always produces lasting fruit, both in what you and I believe and in how you and I behave. So Peter has every reason to be concerned about what he's observing. Now, here's why I said we're just, this summer, we're, we're, we're dipping our toes in Second Peter. I realize, our whole staff, as we put this together, we, we realize starting a, a new series in the summertime, that's a bit challenging just because of everybody's schedules. And nothing wrong with that. You're going to have opportunities for vacation. We're glad for that. You're going to have opportunities to visit family in other places. We understand people are somewhat in and out in the summertime. Well, if you start a new verse-by-verse series in the summertime, it's possible that people are going to miss important parts and just the development of the logic. And so, so here's the plan. This summer, we're doing a series entitled Hope for Fruitful Service. So now we're back logically to Marvin Davis' pies a hope for fruitful service, and here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to isolate our attention on seven character qualities given in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7, and then we plan to use an example from the Old Testament to illustrate each one of those characteristics because that's something else we try to do in our teaching schedule around here is pivot back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament just to be sure that we're being balanced. And so again, we're going to be focusing right now for the next seven weeks on just the seven character qualities that are mentioned in 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7. We're going to use a, a character from the Old Testament each week to illustrate that characteristic. And then in the second half of the summer, we're going to study what Scripture says about spiritual gifts. That's another part of our fruitfulness. You may remember that Peter raised that topic at the end of 1 Peter, so we're going to do some work on that. And then, Lord willing, if Jesus has not returned first, um, once we hit the fall, uh, once summer is over, we're going to go back to 2 Peter, and we're going to jump into that and go verse by verse by verse through the entire book, just like we did in the book of 1 Peter earlier this year. So with all of that in mind, Here's what this means. You're going to have to turn to two passages of Scripture. You ready for that? You up for that? I know it's a summer, Sunday, kind of hot. You up for it? Here we go. Two passages of Scripture. So go to 2 Peter 1.5. That's on page 183 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you if you're using one of those. So obviously that's in the New Testament. So 2 Peter 1.5. You got one hand there. And then back to Daniel chapter 1. That's on page 628 of the front section in the Old Testament. So 2 Peter chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 1. How are you doing finding both those places? You good? Do I need to give you a break? (laughs) All right, here we go. Let's read it. I'm going to start reading 2 Peter 1, 1, just to give us a, a running start on this book. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel just mapped all over that. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, uh, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, this is an amazing promise, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, I want to encourage you in your mind or even physically in your Bible, if you like to write in your Bible, and note the word excellence. Our God is characterized by by moral excellence in its perfect form. And think about what we were singing earlier about reflecting, magnifying the Lord and what Pastor Johnny said about the amazing truth that it's possible for people like you and me to, to magnify God's character. Well, that's part of God's character, His glory and His excellence at the end of chapter, or verse 3. Now, let's keep reading. For by these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent 
magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, now, with that background in mind, look at these key um, verses, the next three, which is going to frame the next seven weeks for us. Now, for this very reason also, and this is somewhat stunning, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. There it is. That's what we're talking about this morning. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Now, with that in mind, go back to Daniel chapter 1, and let's see a great example in the Word of God of moral excellence. So Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, and whom is no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. There's moral excellence. That's what Peter was talking about in the list he made. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander. Fascinating how he did this of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid, my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you will make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat. We're going to have a salad here and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. They were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. And you realize in that culture, that was a good thing. The fatter, the better. Don't you wish you lived in that culture? They were just, they were fatter. They were fatter. Verse 16, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. Imagine talking to Nebuchadnezzar. And out of them, all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, now we're going to skip over, for sake of time, what Peter said in the first four verses of Second Peter. That, that's hard to do, and Lord willing, we'll get back to that um, in, in the fall. But that's where Peter explains the beauty and the sufficiency of the salvation we've been given fully and completely in Jesus Christ. But for our purposes this morning, focus first on what Peter says we should do as a result of our salvation. In other words, if you've trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, what should some of the fruit look like, or what should some of the fruit taste like. And he says, now, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. One commentator explained it like this, applying 
It means to bring in or to supply beside. And implies making a strong effort to bring something necessary. That's fascinating. You're adding something to your faith. Making a strong effort to provide something necessary in view of and parallel to God's endeavor in providing salvation. Believers are compelled to call on all the regenerate faculties to live godly lives. I like that statement. That believers are compelled to call on, this is how the fruit is developed, all their regenerate faculties to live godly lives. Believers must carry out that effort with all diligence. A great question to ask right at the beginning here. How much effort have you and I put into developing in the power of the Holy Spirit integrity? That's what moral excellence is. Believers must carry out that effort with all diligence. It's a word that means zeal. Eagerness accompanied by, by a sense of, of urgency. Now, if you're trying to follow through or just follow along with all this, you probably recognize we're in a bit of a theological minefield here. How so? Well, we know that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So if you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, you really don't need to be thinking right now about, now, how can I add moral excellence to whatever it is that I have? No, that's not the way it works. At first, the, the Christian life starts by acknowledging that I can do nothing to please God in my own effort. And so I place my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross at a point in time as my only hope of being reconciled to a holy God. And if you've not yet done that, we would, we would implore you um, to choose to, to make that decision today. And we rejoice with people who have, and we're looking forward tonight to celebrating those who are going to be following the Lord and believers' baptism as a physical demonstration of the decision that they have already made in their heart to trust Christ. But on the other hand, Once a person genuinely comes to know the Lord, they're going to be depending on the power of God to develop spiritual truth. You could say it this way. It's the balance between Ephesians 2.8.9 and Ephesians 2.10. If you get into either one of those passages without balancing by the other, you're going to be in trouble. So Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Amen, 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 amen. That's how a person comes to know Christ. But what happens next? Don't say I'm just living in Ephesians 2.8.9 and I have no interest in going any further. Wrong, wrong. If you've experienced Ephesians 2.8.9, and I hope you have, then I hope also you're in verse 10 big time. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, for developing fruitfulness, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And part of what we're demonstrating right now is just the ability of a follower of Christ to have theological balance. There's balance in the Word of God. And some might even say, though I think it's sometimes too strong of a word, but tension theologically between those ideas. And we see that in many places in the Bible. Here's another example while we're just thinking about this. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, look for the balance. Look for the almost tension. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. You see it? It's right there. Who's working? Is man working or is God working? What's the answer to that question? both. However, I'm really confident that God did His work last week, aren't you? I'm really confident God's going to do His work next week, aren't you? So we need to be focusing on what? (laughs) Whether my wife's doing hers? No, that would not be the answer. That would not be the answer, whether I'm doing mine. And that's what Peter is talking about. Add to your faith. It's an amazing statement. Add to your faith, or maybe better said, build on your faith with all diligence. And that then becomes the governing word. So if you say, am I about to hear that seven weeks in a row? Yes, you are. Because that's, you say, why? That's the governing verb. That's then what takes us to each one of these seven characteristics. Add to your faith, build on your faith with all diligence, beginning with what? Beginning with moral excellence, beginning with integrity. I mentioned as we were reading, if you're in the habit of of writing in your Bible, you might want to go back to verse 3. 
And notice the exact same word is used, excellence, to describe the character of God. And that, again, just illustrates the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And you could summarize what we've said so far with this. Our God perfectly possesses moral excellence. Do you believe that? And are you glad that's true? Our God possesses perfect moral excellence. And one of the fruits of people like you and me knowing Him is that we're growing in that characteristic as well. One writer said it like this, and I really like this quote. The first virtue, moral excellence, arte uses the distinctive word in classical Greek for virtue. It was such a lofty term that it was used for moral heroism. I I like that phrase, moral heroism, viewed as the divinely endowed ability to excel in heroic, courageous deeds. It came to encompass the most outstanding quality in someone's life or the, the proper and the excellent fulfillment of a task or duty. Arte never meant cloistered virtue. So we're not saying, i got to develop moral excellence, so I better find some flagpole somewhere and crawl up on top of that thing and and live in some kind of cloistered environment for the rest. No, 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 no. Arte never meant cloistered virtue, but that which was demonstrated in the normal course of living. Are you a person of integrity at work? Are you a person of moral excellence at home? Are you that way in your neighborhood? Are you that way in your personal life? Arte never meant cloistered virtue, that which is demonstrated in the normal course of living. The Apostle Paul, the writer says, modeled the pursuit of such spiritual heroism. I press on toward the mark of the, or the, for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that's the question before the house this morning. It took me a little while to get there. But that's where we are this morning. Is your hope in everyday life, regardless of the trials you might be facing, producing the fruit of moral excellence? Would the people around you say that you're a person of integrity? Now, with all that background in mind, now let's go to Daniel 1. And let's think about four obstacles to integrity that that God helped Daniel and God can help us overcome. Because we're going to need help if we're going to be growing in the fruit of moral excellence. Is that right? Especially in the culture in which we live, we are going to need help for sure. Well, God helped Daniel. Do you believe that? God helped Daniel big time. And God still stands ready to help people like you and me as well. What are the obstacles? Well... And one obstacle is making excuses because of your age. Daniel's story has the word moral excellence or integrity written all over it. And part of what's amazing is that Daniel and his companions were likely 14 or 15 years old. Now, I realize, let's just kind of push the pause button right there because I realize some of you are brand new to studying the Bible. And by the way, we're glad for that. God is giving us a number of new people at every one of our campuses. We're so excited about that. God is drawing men and women to himself just like he promised he would. And even those of us who have been Christians for a longer period of time, sometimes we get a little hazy on some of these biblical details anyway, especially from the Old Testament. So why would it have been so significant to a young man like Daniel to be taken away from the land and be transported to a place like Babylon, to to be experiencing the the Babylonian captivity. What what is that all about? Well, let's go back to the very beginning for a minute. The the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis catalog the amazing truth that human beings are made in God's image with, with the calling and the ability to live in a way that reflects His character. We've been singing about that this morning. Pastor Johnny was talking with us about that this morning, and we just saw that in the argument of 2 Peter. So you have our God, who is characterized by perfect moral excellence in 2 Peter 1.3, and His children are called to add diligence to our faith by developing moral excellence over time ourselves. That's the, the balance that we're talking about. It's reflecting the character of God. That kind of fruitfulness is almost too delicious to be true. But the book of Genesis also emphasizes this, our incredible ability to walk away from that calling for lesser gods or desires or temptations. So in Genesis 12, pivotal chapter in the Bible, God comes to a man named Abram, and he tells him and his wife that though they have no children, God plans to make of them a great nation. 
And what's very unique about that chapter is that God is the one who initiates that relationship through a series of promises or eventually covenants, emphasizing, and I hope every person who's been around this church for a period of time could stand to their feet right now and name the threefold provision of the Abrahamic covenant. And the answer is, in case that one's a little fuzzy for you, land and seed and blessing. If I run into you sometime this summer, and it's amazing how often I run into church members when I'm just out and about, I might just ask you at the mire while you're thumping your next watermelon, <laughs> hey, what is the threefold provision of the Abrahamic covenant? I hope you'll be ready with land and, and seed and, and blessing. And Abram's responsibility is to respond with faith with belief that God can and will keep His promises. And those same promises, land, seed, blessing, land, seed, blessing, are repeated to to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph, and that's how God's chosen nation was born. All that started, by the way, I know what you're thinking. What was the date for that? Good question. That started around 2100 B.C. Now, I'm skipping a lot for sake of time, but, but eventually... God's people were allowed to enter the promised land, and they enjoyed prosperity under great kings like David. And just for sake of uh, dates, that would have been about 1000 B.C. So the people of God, they're in their land, and they're experiencing the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. But God had warned His people even before they entered the promised land. You could read about this in Deuteronomy 28 that you will eventually go under captivity to another nation because you will reject me as your God. That's a fa- that statement, by the way, would have been made around 1400 B.C. God predicted captivity, and he used that specific word in Deuteronomy 28. Now we come to the book of Daniel. Daniel is experiencing the Babylonian captivity around 605 B.C. So the nation of Babylon is in the process of conquering them, and what we just read in chapter 1, taking their choice citizens back to Babylon. And here's the idea in a nutshell. They're trying to make Babylonians out of them. In other words, eat our food, wear our clothes, adopt our names, and most importantly, worship our gods. In other words, compromise your moral excellence. That's how all this fits together logically. Stop being like the unique and holy God of Israel. Put off that kind of fruitfulness and just just blend in. Blend into our pagan culture. It's like Paul would later say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Or as J.B. Phillips translated in his version of the New Testament, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world make a Babylonian out of you. And this is a pretty good month to have that conversation, is it not? Where, where the culture is saying, let's celebrate those who are going to um, rebel against God's creative design, and we will shame people who don't get in line with that. And worse, if your company is not willing to get in line with all of our DEI ideas, we're going to shame you and not even allow you to receive a loan from the bank. That, that's the culture in which we live. The world wants you to compromise your moral excellence defined as choosing to live for yourself and your family by the truth of the Word of God. The world wants to make a Babylonian out of you. They want you not to be characterized by the fruitfulness of moral excellence. Now think about Daniel 1 from a parental perspective for a minute. Can you imagine what it would be like if a couple of your teenagers were taken out of your home and carted off to a foreign land? And, of course, you'd be concerned about their safety, their well-being, no doubt about that. There'd be the the pain of not having them in your home any longer. But at some point, you'd probably be wondering how they'd be able to stand up under the pressure they're about to face as young people. Think about it from this perspective. What if that happened to you back when you were 14 or 15 years old? And for most of us, not everybody, but for most of us in this room right now, that would be looking back, right? How would you have done? If you were facing these kind of issues at that age, and that is one of the bottom lines of this passage, Daniel didn't let his age stop him from doing what was right. You you don't read anything in this book that even approximates an excuse. None of this, hey, I'm just young, so you can't expect me to do right. No, 
Daniel overcame the obstacle of making excuses because of his age. Now, please connect that with what we said a moment ago about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because you understand, ultimately, this book is not about Daniel. This book is ultimately about Daniel's God, and even when his people, remember the context, they're being judged, they're under captivity. They're being judged because of their unfaithfulness. God is still working in and through the lives of individual men and women, some who are quite young, and helping them develop moral excellence in the face of incredible pressure. And that ought to fill our hearts with hope. Because if you look around our culture and say things have gotten so bad in this culture, it would be impossible for me, it would be impossible for our kids, it would be impossible for our grandkids to live lives of moral excellence. That is not true. That There's hope for fruitful living regardless of what might be happening in our culture. Now, what are some of the lessons for people like you and me? Well, one of them is the importance and value of training children and young people to love God and to live for Him. You know, one of the things that's left out of this conversation in the book of Daniel is Daniel's parents. We don't know anything about what they did prior to Daniel leaving their home. Wouldn't you like to know that? We don't know whether they even knew what their son was now doing, when they might have learned that. Did his parents stay back in Israel? Did they know about the stand his son was taking? Were they able to rejoice in his obedience? It's not like they're going to say, well, yeah, we, we're caught up on that. We FaceTimed last night, and so we, we, we know how, right? I mean, we don't even know if they were alive, but we know this. We, we do know this. Somebody did something right, Right? Because people don't come out of the womb with the moral convictions like a young man named Daniel. So somebody cared about teaching truth. And somebody cared about living for truth and modeling truth. And it wasn't because, by the way, well, they knew that this was going to happen to Daniel at age 14, so they hurried up and got him ready. No, they, they faithfully did what the Word of God commanded them to do. And when the unexpected happened in their son's life, he was ready. There's great value in seeking to raise young people to love and obey the Lord. And I'd like to just pause on behalf of all of our pastors and just thank the many parents in our church family who who take the job of raising children seriously. And and none are perfect. We'd be the first ones to say that. But there's a lot of people in this auditorium who put a significant amount of effort this week into raising godly children, and you put a significant amount of effort into doing that the week before that, and you'll put, Lord willing, a significant amount of effort into doing it next week as well. And if that's the kind of parent you are, take encouragement from the book of Daniel. There's great value in that. And by the way, I want to be sure that I've said that that's not an ironclad guarantee, that that's not true. Generally speaking, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's general truth. However, God doesn't have grandchildren. So every child eventually has to decide what he or she is going to believe and how they're going to live. And I've been a pastor long enough to have witnessed um, some parents who, by all um, reasonable evaluation, did an excellent job, and when their children were old, they walked away from the faith. That does sometimes happen. Let's not ever shame anybody for that happening or feel ashamed if that happened. Children have to decide what they're going to believe. By the way, if you're in that situation, let me also say this. Just because it's a bad chapter doesn't mean it's the final chapter. I've seen some people make some really, really bad choices and then turn it around. And so never give up hope. Can I just say that? Never give up hope for your kids. Never give up hope for your, for your grandkids. On the other, here's the other side of that truth. I've seen some parents, and, and they would be the first ones to tell you they didn't do a particularly good job raising their kids, that they made some serious, serious errors, and out popped a kid who was really good. And, and so this is not like baking chocolate chip cookies. It's not. And by the way, I, the more food I talk about, the more I get... Anybody got a snack bar? But, but anyway... Um, It's not like if you get the menu right, then the cookies are going to come out right every time. That's not the way parenting works. But I know this. I know this. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, do what God wants you to do and don't give up hope because of the culture in which we live, believing, well, God cannot help young people live well. That is not true. 
I also want to say a word to all the people in this church who serve in our various youth ministries. You know, it's amazing that there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who serve in our youth ministries here at our church, and some of them have been doing that for decades. Talking about fruit, by the way. I like people who, who talk about their, who could talk about their faithful service in terms of decades, and that's not always easy ministry. If you've been involved in in youth ministry and children's ministry, it's not always easy, but take encouragement from the book of Daniel. There's great value in that. I also want to thank our church family for having the vision to offer all kinds of ministries to young people. I mean, why do we have a Sunday school? You realize some churches, they just gave up having Sunday school. It's too much work. It's too much work. So they gave that. I'm glad we haven't given that up. Why do we do that? Well, it's to have a part in raising up Daniels, right? To, to assist parents in raising up Daniels and, and Daniels. Why do we have a Wednesday night kids of faith program? Why do we have a youth group? Why do we have a Christian school? Or why do we support those who are in public school or homeschooling? Why do we have vacation Bible school in just a couple of weeks? Why do we support Christian camps and, and Christian colleges? It's because of this. Young people can make a difference for God. And by the way, I hope you'll be here at our groundbreaking tonight. What a historic night. And we have every reason in the world to shout praises to our God as loud as we know how for the provision that he's made and for the opportunity that we have to add to the the youth ministries of this church through our Christian school. And um, what a blessing God has given us. And I hope you'll be here as we just celebrate that. Why? We're trying to train Daniel's. And even if you lose hope, oh, what's going on in our culture? Let the book of Daniel change that around. It's possible for young people to grow in moral excellence. Here's another lesson from all of this. God can help young people do important things for him now. Let me just talk to the the young people here. and You can decide what constitutes being a a young person. Younger than me, okay, that's the definition of, of that. But this is one of the things I really love about Christianity. You don't have to be a certain age chronologically or spiritually before God can start using you. You realize Daniel would have barely had peach fuzz on his face. And he's making a significant contribution to the plan and program of God. A lot more significant than many of the Jewish adults of his day. That's something else I love about the children's ministries around here, things like Sunday school, like VBS, like Wednesday Night Kids of Faith, is that one of the kids ages out of the program and they immediately start serving. We'll see that happen in Vacation Bible School. A number of our servants will be teenagers, young people. They're now out of Vacation Bible School. They've graduated out of that and now they're serving. And you see that on Wednesday nights, you see that on Sunday school, on Sundays. Can that have an eternal impact on somebody else right now? And what's the answer to that? You better believe it. That's what happened in Daniel's life. And the point is Daniel overcame the obstacle of making excuses because of his age. You know, as I look back at my life, I'm very thankful for the adults. I'm very thankful for my mom and for her faith. I'm glad for the adults in my life that God used, but I'll tell you, just speaking personally, what God especially used to draw me to Him was other kids, other teenagers. And I, I was very shy. I didn't want to go to youth group. And there's a guy a couple of years older than me. I mean, he's still in high school. He would call relentlessly. And this was back when somebody called and you actually had to go to like a room and there was a thing on the wall. You, you remember those days? And, but, but, and that guy would make the effort. For some of you, Google it. Google it, you'll, you'll find it. And, and um, they, they probably have one down at the antique shop too. But, but anyway, wish I would have kept mine. But, but anyway, back to the point. There's, um, he just called over and over and over. And finally, I just started going to youth group because I got sick of telling the guy no. But it's amazing how God used his pursuit. He was just trying to be a, have a ministry to me. And then I met some of the young people at the church in the youth group, and what I found out about them was they, their faith was real, not just when they were around dad and mom or around adults, but even when we were just hanging out socially, they, they knew how to have fun, but they didn't have to do something wrong in order to have fun. And they also, there was always another place for somebody else. And so they invited me in, and they wanted me to, to be part of that. That had a tremendous, and, and I will be eternally grateful, not just for the adults that were used to bring me to Christ, but for the teenagers who were used to, to bring me to Christ. 
And so if you're a young person, please don't think, okay, moral excellence, that's something that I'll work on then. No, no, moral excellence is something that you can work on now, and God can bless you with that fruit even today. One other idea while we're in that neighborhood is God can use people who are young in the faith. I mean, obviously, with Daniel, we're talking about somebody who is young chronologically, but I realize that there's some people in our church who would say, listen, I'm younger in the sense that I've just recently come to Christ. Or I'm just getting started on this, this growing business. Listen, you too can be greatly encouraged by what we're studying. You don't have to be saved and growing for a hundred years before God can start using you. And I realize a place like this can be a little bit intimidating. We emphasize progressive sanctification. We emphasize serving. We emphasize growth. So there's a lot of people around here who take the Christian life very seriously. But if you're here and you would say, I'm just, I'm just on the front end of all of that. Here's our response, great. There's a place for you. Regardless of where you are on the growth spectrum, be encouraged by the life of Daniel. God can use even those who are young. Now, the Lord also allowed Daniel to overcome the obstacle of becoming bitter because of your place. Now, one of the reasons I gave that Old Testament background at at the beginning was to make this point. I don't know that people like you and me can fully grasp what it would have meant for a Jewish young man to have to leave his land. See, for you and me, I mean, moving, it's the American way. So a piece of land doesn't mean much. But to the people from God's chosen nation, their land... That was a sacred gift. It was a a sacred trust. It was an essential aspect of the covenant that God had made with them. That, by the way, is why there's so much tension in that part of the world even to this day. And Daniel had been taken along with his friends from the, the promised land, and he very easily could have responded with, I can't live with moral excellence as long as God has me in this place. God wouldn't expect me to do that, and I couldn't do it even if he did. In fact, I think that's a very good question for all of us to ask this morning. Am I letting the disappointment of whatever place I'm in be my excuse for sinning in some way? See, I I can't live by moral excellence. I can't be diligent to add that to my faith because of the place that I'm in right now. So let's take a college student who has an unreasonable professor who just piles on the work. You know, professors can be like that, right? And the different ways that students can cheat in order to get out of that work today, it's absolutely staggering. So in other words, a college student who would say, because I'm in this place of an unreasonable professor, I don't have to have integrity in the way I do my homework. I'm just going to cheat. And I'm going to tell you that the number of ways you can cheat as a student, it is incredible. And what's going on right now with AI, it's amazing. And I'm told that some professors have ways to determine whether or not a student used AI in the crafting of that essay or that paper or whatever. (laughs) Okay, but AI is being developed faster than ethicists and authorities can keep up, huh? Frank Oliver and I were in Mexico City last month, and we actually were there on May 5th. We were there on Cinco de Mayo. And so we were riding with a guy from Mexico City. I was sitting in the front seat. The guy from Mexico City was driving. Frank was in the back. And so I just asked the guy who was driving, I said, hey, what is, what's the point of Cinco de Mayo? I, I didn't know. I wanted to learn something. And so the guy tried to start explaining it and tried to start explaining it. And, and, and he said, after a couple of minutes, you know, I, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. And under my breath, I said, no, you're really not. And, and, but, but Frank, in the back seat, all of a sudden he starts reading. The, actually, I thought he was talking until I turned around and realized he was reading something off of his phone, reading this perfect explanation of what Cinco de Mayo was. And the reason is he had entered it into one of those AI programs and asked it to spit out a 500-word essay on the purpose and meaning of Cinco de Mayo. And bam, I mean, it was there. It was in a minute. He had a, Frank's a genius. No, Frank has AI. But, but I mean, it just, it's just, so, so that the temptation that would be for us, and you have to decide, even when you think your professor is being unreasonable, are you going to be a person of moral excellence? By the way, on that AI thing, let me just tell you, that is becoming a little bit intimidating even to pastors. Because I have wondered and perhaps worried, what's going to happen when I come back from one of these trips to find out that our church has hired or bought some kind of a robot and and, and programmed it with AI 
And that robot can read every book that's ever been written on a particular passage of Scripture, listen to every sermon that's ever been preached on a particular passage of Scripture, read every book about how to preach properly and give the perfect sermon on that topic. Where's that going to... I mean, I'm going to be kicked to the curb. That's what I'm worried about with this whole AI business. And let me just give you a word of warning. Those robots, they have never built pools. And so there will not be... You can't get that through technology. Just be careful. Just, that's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, now let's keep moving. He, he didn't let hard circumstances determine his choices. And by the way, there's no doubt that these were hard circumstances. He is being trained to serve who? King Nebuchadnezzar. What would working for King Nebuchadnezzar be like? Well, you may remember what, what happened in just uh, the next chapter where the king has a dream, and he tells the, the, the dreams, or he tells his wise men, I want you to tell me not just the meaning of the dream, but the dream itself. So Daniel 2.5, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and the interpretation, you're going to be, here it is, torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. You ever work for a guy like that? And I'd appreciate it if our staff didn't speak out, but, but have you ever worked... For a person like that, Daniel had every reason in the world to let circumstances determine his choices. I can't live in a way that's characterized by moral excellence as long as the Lord has me in this place. And I just want to challenge all of us to be very, very careful of that one. I had to lie on that expense report because I'm not being paid properly. Or I had to lash out in sinful anger because my husband, my wife, my kids, my in-laws... The problem isn't me, the problem is my place. And I would just ask you this question this morning. Can you think of any way that you're compromising your integrity, you're compromising your moral excellence because of the uncomfortableness of your place? And friend, if that's the case, take hope and make changes if necessary. It doesn't have to happen. It didn't happen to Daniel. It doesn't have to happen to you. Thirdly, God allowed Daniel to overcome the obstacle of giving him the small compromises. What was going on with this food? A daily ration from the king's choice food and wine. They were allowed to eat from the king's table. Can you imagine that? Sumptuous food. What was the problem with it? Well, it would have been a violation of the Bible. It would have been a violation of their Old Testament dietary laws, and it had probably been offered up to foreign gods. And you might say, but in the grand scheme of things, why did that matter? Here's the answer. It's just a little compromise. It's just a little step, and it also would have been a deadly one. That's why they didn't do it. And the lesson is Babylonian makers aren't going to ask you to become one all at once. They'll just ask you to take one small step. See, just a little compromise, just a little backing down, just a little giving in. And I'm not talking about regarding your opinions. I'm talking about violating the Word of God Solomon said a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. You know, Peter swore he had never denied the Lord, and then there he was. Somebody says, hey, weren't you one of his followers? It's just going to be a little lie, followed by another little lie, and followed by another little lie, and pretty soon he had denied his Lord, who was in the process of dying for his sin three times. And did you face any situations this week where you were tempted to compromise your relationship with Christ? And I'll answer for you. The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. And the question then becomes, what did you do? It was just a little lie. It was just a comment that was a little off color. It was just a a little glance. It was just a little And if we want to be like Daniel, if we want to add to our faith moral excellence, then we have to be committed to not giving in even to the small compromises of life. And then lastly, the Lord allowed Daniel to overcome the obstacle of being distanced from his God. What was the whole point about these these names? Well, their names spoke of their love for and connection to God. So Daniel means God is my judge, Hananiah, Jehovah is gracious, Mishael, who is like God, and Azariah, Jehovah is my helper. The Babylonians didn't like that, and so they gave them new names to try to distance them from their God, each one of them. 
uh, in some way focusing on worshiping one of the gods of Babylon. Do you see the pressure? Worship our idols, fit into our culture, don't stand out, and more than anything else, don't show allegiance to the one true God. Aren't you glad that over 2,500 years ago, God helped these young men live lives characterized by moral excellence? And by the way, to whom is all of this pointing ultimately? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how is that? Well, somebody unfamiliar with this story might think, I bet Daniel didn't live very long. No, the pagan kings didn't live very long. And that's the point of the very last verse we read from chapter 1. And Daniel continued how long? Until the first year of Cyrus the king. What, mean, what that means is his ministry spanned 70 years through the reign of a number of pagan kings. And that's one of the main points of the book of Daniel, which is why it's in the canon, because it was a message to the exiles that the most important king was a Nebuchadnezzar. Or Belshazzar, whomever was on the human throne at the time, the most important king was the Lord Jesus Christ, whose reign and power is illustrated throughout this book, including Daniel's own vision in chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Who is going to give me power to have moral excellence? That king. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You'll develop the fruit of moral excellence if you're following the right king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed that's the Savior who makes the fruit of moral excellence possible. And that's just another reason that people like you and me can have hope. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that moral excellence would be entirely impossible for us uh, apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Lord, thank you that you have saved many of us in this room. And now you have given us the charge to, in your power, uh, by your guidance to grow in the fruit of moral excellence. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think about this this morning. And, Lord, I pray that if there's cracks, if there's steps, decisions that need to be changed, I pray that we would do that. And, Lord, I pray that our integrity would be part of what would point others to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.